the NBC series on Sunday night at 9 p.m. called A.D., and uh, it's 12 weeks. We are at week six, and what the series is about is the epic story of how the church came into existence. Now, that may sound boring to you at one level, but when you think of the church as being a community of people that are fully alive in Christ and on his mission, and they have purpose that far exceeds anything this world could offer, then you start to get a little enticed and say, I want to be a part of that. And so we go from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the empowerment of the apostles, the followers of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, to the conflict that's going on with the religious leaders and the the political leaders of the day, headed into persecution, discouragement. Maybe this is not going to work after all. But God's got a plan. God's got a plan for what's going on. And so you have Peter in a little uh, clip from the episode that will be tonight becoming more and more charged that they are the church. Strength is building from week to week even though chaos is still brewing on many fronts. We are a part of that ongoing epic in this world. And if you are a chosen follower of Jesus Christ and you've chosen to follow him, then you are a part of the church. Not this church. Yes, that's great. We'd love to have you a part of this church. We're glad you're a part of this church. But you are a part of the church, which is the assembly of God, the people who are followers of Christ, the body of Christ. And you are being called to his work on this planet called Earth until Jesus Christ comes again, as he promised. As surely as he rose from the grave. He will come again. Then we're done. No more church. Is that true? There's no more church in the sense of the church as it operates here on earth. But we will be then a part of what the scripture refers to as the bride of Christ. And we will rule and reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth throughout all time. So the church age that we are a part of is a unique age. And we have to continually discover afresh, I believe, every week. And I'm the pastor, right? Afresh every week, the joy and the excitement and the beauty of this thing called the church. And what it means for us to be on mission with him. Now, I had a pretty big challenge about this morning. And I'm still not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. I asked God if I could change the subject of today, seeing it's Mother's Day, right? Well, we've had some time to focus on the mother's thing and all that, and that's good. But here's my challenge. Where we're at in the first ten chapters of Acts as we're moving through sequentially with what is on the 80 series on Sunday nights. I'm not speaking about where the series is going tonight because I'm not fully sure where it's going. I know where we're going for next week, but I have not been able to get release from speaking on where the episode ended last week. So I have the challenge of speaking on the martyrdom of Stephen on Mother's Day. And you will probably not remember anything that I say today other than one time I went to a church and he talked about Stephen being killed on Mother's Day. What kind of a message is that? But the reason we can't bypass 
the whole story of what happened to Stephen when he was stoned to death and what happened to the church following Stephen's stoning is because it's at a pivot point of the history of the church. If what happened to Stephen and consequently what happened to the church in Acts 7, 6, 7, and 8 did not happen, we would not have the explosion of the church around the world today. And so we need to look not only at the martyrdom of Stephen, but we need to look at the life of Stephen. You know, when you watch us, your series sometimes and they kill off a character, aren't you like really bummed about that? You're like, I can't believe they killed him off. That was one of my favorite guys. Now, where's the story going to go? I get that feeling a little bit with the episode here in Acts because you start to discover who Stephen is. Stephen is a pretty cool guy, but he ends up getting killed off. I want to know Stephen better. I want to see what he would have become. But God chose to use his death in order to build his church. And we're going to look at that. That's an interesting thing, though, now that it's Mother's Day and we can speak about death. My goodness, I don't know what I'm doing that for, right? Because it causes us to realize the finality of this life. I remember an old-time preacher once said to me, he says, uh, you need to freshly discover in your life the brevity of life and the shortness of life. And one of the things that death does is it causes us to reflect on the lives that we're living and reevaluate them. There was a nurse who um, wrote an article once. She actually turned it into a book. And uh, she worked a lot with deathbed patients. And she came up with a list of the five regrets people make on their deathbed. Here are the five regrets people make on their deathbed. Number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Pause moment in time. You're not dead. That's good. You're not even facing death because you're here, right? Could that be true of your life in this hour, in this week? That you're living life uh, not with the courage to live life as You felt called to live it, but you're trying to always live up to the expectations of others. It's one of the regrets people make on their deathbed. Number two is, I wish I didn't work so hard. Now, uh, this definitely came from men. In particular, the nurse said because uh, she was dealing with um, people who were dying in that generation that the women were always uh, at work. But I don't know of anybody who goes to their deathbed going, man, I wish I would have put more hours in at the office. Huh? Oh, shoot. I, I wish I would have gotten five more projects done for them. And even many times going, man, I wish I would have made more money and gotten better salaries. No, when the brevity of life starts to swarm around you, you say, wow, that, you know, really was all those hours I poured into that worthwhile? Now, God calls us to work and he blesses our work, but there's always the balance, right? Number three, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I always reflect on this when I was younger and because I have uh, teenagers and uh, young adults now in my home. I think in terms of telling them, just, just tell them what you think. Don't, don't always be ashamed of this or that. You know, just speak it out, all right? I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings more. Number four. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. 
I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I had a situation uh, recently in the last couple of weeks where I uh, had some retouch with a friend, and, it, and I look back and go, where, where did the 30 years blow by, and we really haven't been in touch, and now they have family and things, and I sort of like the person, right? And you go, well, why didn't we stay in touch and the same thing can be true, especially on a Mother's Day weekend. If you were to ask this question further in some other ranks, and especially, I think, in Christian ranks, I wish that I would have spent more time with the foremost friends of my life, which are my kids and my spouse and my extended family that's close to me. And the last is I wish I'd let myself be happier. I wish I'd let myself be happier. What might be your regret if you were on your deathbed? What do you think Stephen's regret was when he was facing the trial that he was put on with the Sanhedrin and he was physically being stoned to death? We're going to look at that and so I want to encourage you to uh, take your scriptures and open your scriptures so you have them when you're, uh, in your Bible or maybe along your way if you've got... Um, uh, an iPad or something, and uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and also chapter 7. But don't worry, we're not going to belabor into chapter um, 7. It says this in Acts 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Let me stop there. Where were we last week? We were at the passage right before this passage in Acts 6 where they chose seven others beyond the apostles to help with the taking care of the widows in that day. And among those seven were Stephen and Philip and five others that we never hear from again. But Stephen and Philip, two characters that do come back around in Acts, as I mentioned, they kill off Stephen um, in, in, in the storyline, right? But there is um, interest in knowing about Stephen and Philip in particular and how they operated with the apostles. Now, it said prior to this, it said that Stephen was uh, one of the seven and the seven were full of the spirit and wisdom. And here it says Stephen was a man not only full of the spirit and wisdom, but he was also full of God's grace and power. And he did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Later on in verse 8, it will say that he was a man full of God's grace and power, right? It says, it says here, but all these together, you put them together and it's like, well, full of grace, full of power, full of faith, full of wisdom. He was a man who was full of a lot of it, all right, of the good stuff, okay? So Stephen is a character, not a make-believe character in a story, a character in the unfolding story of the early church who was a very prominent and strong person. Now, here's the interesting thing that, as it relates to the AD series. I don't like how they depicted Stephen. And I don't like the brevity of which they dealt with Stephen. And I don't really um, think of Stephen as someone who was a reckless individual and uh, I've, uh, they depict him as bold in one sense. But Stephen was a very strong, astute individual. Some people believe he was a part of the 70 earlier in the story of uh, Jesus Christ and the calling of the disciples. And so he had been around. He was not a Hebrew 
Christian Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was a Greek-speaking Jew. From the outside, he'd come in. That's why he was one of the seven that was chosen to deal with the Greek-speaking Christian widows. All right? Stephen, I believe, was as strong of a character as you would find Peter and the Apostle Paul to be. But he's killed off. He's killed off. Yeah, come on. I want to get to know this, Stephen. He's, he's full of wisdom and power and the Holy Spirit and grace, and he's full of faith. The life of Stephen is somebody to dial into, though it's very brief in Scripture, and realize that what we have in Stephen is a strong, bold man of God. And even though Stephen was chosen to help serve, be a part of the team that's going to feed the widows, he was a bold preacher. In fact, that's one of the things A.D. didn't do a very good job. They didn't show him doing the acts of service. They didn't show him endeared towards the role in which he was called. He was like, I want to preach all the time. Well, yeah, he did preach. All right? But he was a man who did multiple things in that early church that had a powerful impact. So Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. It's the first time outside the apostles we find that... Uh, One of the followers of Jesus is doing miracles themselves. So it's not limited to just that holy huddle of 12 people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providence of Sicily and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then, verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Stephen was minding his own business. He was helping with the apostles lead that early church movement. He was performing miracles and wondrous signs. He was pointing people to Jesus Christ and He got caught in the snare. He got caught in the snare of the religious elite. And they said, we don't like what he's doing. And so they grab him and they pull him and start to accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Next verse. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now we're getting ready to head into Acts 7. To understand Acts 7, you have to understand this accusation. Because what Stephen does in Acts 7 is not necessarily a defense as much as it is a response to what he's been drugged into the Sanhedrin for. And he's been drugged into the Sanhedrin because he's been blasphemous. And they said they've been blasphemous in two ways, against this holy place and against the law. He said, destroy this place, change the customs of Moses. Now, here's the thing. There was some truth in that. That's exactly what he was calling out. And they saw that as blasphemous. They saw it as a significant 
threat in their life. Verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen as they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thus, I don't see Stephen as some manic, reckless sojourner with the apostles. I see him, truly as it says, a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power, full of the wisdom and the knowledge of all that was going on. And he had the face as that of an angel. It's said of Moses, when he came down from the mount, he had been in the presence of God and his face shone with the beauty of God. I don't know about you, but there's some days I look in the mirror and I go, that is not a face of an angel. (laughs) I recalled my dad. He used to say he saw angels. He'd seen an angel. And I said, Dad, he really saw an angel. He said, yeah, every morning I wake up and I look over and I see an angel. Now, I don't say that to my wife. But she doesn't say it to me either. I love my wife on this Mother's Day. But most of the time in our life, even in our Christian journey, we have a countenance that is haggard, frazzled, worried. This man has just got drugged before the Sanhedrin. And he had a face filled with the glory of God. His face was like the face of an angel. I believe there was something in the spirit and the knowledge of Stephen that displayed itself, the interior explained itself in an exterior way that is key for us as we look at life and even one day death. And that is he had a picture of all that God was doing on this earth and he rightly understood his place and time and the hope that we have. Not only the hope for eternity, but the hope for tomorrow. So as he gets drugged before them, this is what happens. In verse 7, I'm sorry, in chapter 7 it says this, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? What charges? The charges of blasphemy that he spoke against the holy place, being the temple in which he was, and that he was against the law and the customs of Moses. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, leave your country and your people. God said, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, here's the interesting thing. What you have in chapter 7 of Acts is the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. It's even longer than Peter when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and addressed men of Israel. Listen to me carefully and try to explain this. Why is it that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, devotes a whole lengthy chapter to the story of a character that gets killed off? Why don't we have that recorded of the Apostle Paul when he stands up and teaches in the synagogues? Why this story? Why this message? 
Well, because Stephen does something that's very interesting. He takes the history of Scripture, the history of the Jewish people themselves, and he sums it up in a succinct way and positions it before the religious elite of the day. And he calls them out because they are ignorant and being dismissive and being rebellious even against what God's doing in the big story, in the big epic picture. He understood. He understood. <clears throat> Excuse me. He understood what God was doing. Are these charges true? So he launches into this discussion with them. It's the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. It's not necessarily a defense. It's a response to the accusations. It's not necessarily an evangelistic appeal. Remember Peter when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. You know the people were cut to the heart, and they said. You know, what shall we do? And Peter said, what? Repent and believe every one of you. And be baptized in the name of the Lord. And you too will receive the Holy Spirit. And many accepted his message that day. 3,000 and more. We don't find that in this. So it wasn't necessarily an evangelistic appeal as much as it was a strong accusation of guilt that he was trying to impose upon the religious leaders. Stephen's chapter 7 sermon is filled with Scripture. It's sort of a survey of the Old Testament and all the history of the Jewish people. It sort of has a geographic orientation. You find here he starts with this moment. Abraham, he was you know, still in Mesopotamia, which was around the uh, Mediterranean Sea area. And he lived in Haran. And he moved from Haran. And he moved into uh, what is now the promised land, but then moved on through there and into Egypt. And then it goes, uh, the patriarchs back to Shechem. And then it shows up in the wilderness of Moses. And then Moses, when he goes back to Egypt, then he takes the Egypt uh, uh, exodus and it, it moves into the promised land. And then on into the exile, into the Babylonian era. It's interesting. Why does he take all this history and lay it out. I would just simply say, let me go. I've done nothing wrong. He took the moment of time to explain the big story. Because there were two things he was driving after, and they were the two things that he was accused of being blasphemous of. You see, Stephen and the apostles, the early church, was a threat to Judaism. Judaism was built around the temple and the Mosaic law and all the customs and practices. And so here's Jesus who comes on the scene and he's the the sacrificial lamb. He dies, he's raised from the grave and people start declaring him uh, as the Messiah and the Son of God. And they all start to get threatened that their world could collapse. What do you mean this temple is going to be destroyed? Look at this temple. This is where we perform our services. This is what it's about. And when we see the coming kingdom that we're longing for, these are the religious elite people today, with our coming kingdom, there's going to be a place for the temple. And when we rule and we reign and the Romans are gone and we are established back into the glory golden years of King David, This temple is front and center. Why are you talking about destroying this temple and that this temple is not needed, if you will, for worship? And now you're also messing with the customs of Moses. 
All the rules and the laws he laid down, we are protectors of those laws. And so if you dismiss all that, then we don't have not only a job, we don't have control and power. Stephen was addressing materialism and power. And they knew it. Materialism was what? Beautiful temple. This is where God is. This is where you worship. And he say no. And you track through. You can read it on your own. In all chapter 7, we're not going to go through it. But he starts describing that the Israelites, the Jewish people, had been in multiple places, in multiple lands, all through these years. It wasn't necessary for the temple to be there in existence for them to worship God Almighty. Jesus even said this with the woman at the well, with Samaritan woman, right? He says, you will worship me in spirit and truth. Not in a particular locality. So Stephen was being a threat to the materialism and the possessions and the glory that they had in the edifices and the structures. And he was being a threat to their power and their control and how they were able to not lead people into worship always, but many times manipulate people. And that was blasphemous. And they didn't like it. They saw what was happening, not only with Stephen, but with Peter and the other disciples. There was a boldness. There was an uprising. At this time, there was thousands upon thousands of people in the Jerusalem area who had chosen to follow Jesus. It wasn't meant that they were shunning and discarding their their ethnicity or their Jewish faith. There was a completion in their Jewish faith. They had longed for the Messiah, and now the Messiah had come in Christ. And so... They had to do something about it, especially when he ended his sermon this way in Acts 7. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Well... In that moment, they had enough. This guy is pretty bold. He may have the face of an angel. He may be speaking wisdom that we can't refute. He may have the Spirit of God upon him that sort of bothers us. But we hate what he is saying more because we desire our own protection and survival more than going by the way of God. So in Acts seven fifty four. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Isn't that a strange thing to write? Gnashing teeth. It does not look like a pretty scene. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's the only second time the Son of Man's ever used. Jesus used the word Son of Man. They knew what the mean Son of Man was. It went back to Daniel as a reference to a Messiahship. Revelation says one like a Son of Man in reference to Christ. But only here was it spoken by an apostle designated Jesus as the Son of Man. Verse 57, as they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. <laughs> And this picture of a kid, right? I can't hear you, Mom. They closed their ears. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. And the accusations he was throwing in them. 
Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul, who now becomes later on in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul. He was there. He was listening. He was agreeing with this killing of Stephen. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He didn't fall asleep. That's the scriptural way of he fell asleep because there was a coming resurrection. So he's not ultimately the finality of death. You know, it's interesting to me as you look at this, and Charles Spurgeon sort of gave reference to Stephen in these last moments that for Stephen there were four things related to Jesus. Jesus was seen, Jesus was invoked, Jesus was trusted, and Jesus was imitated. Because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And so you have a very godly man who's falsely accused. Drug before a tribunal. They wouldn't even finish listening to all he had to say. They drug him out and they stoned him to death. Just like Jesus was crucified. Wrongly accused. Jesus hung on a cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen with the face of an angel, having seen the glory of God before him, says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It is finished. Receive my spirit. Do you ever wonder how you're going to die? I mean, not how you're going to die, but in what kind of condition and state you're going to die in. Are you going to die as a person who fully understands the big picture and what God's doing in this world? what he's doing in your life and in your home, knowing that you're really just passing through a shadow, stepping into an eternity, not to play a harp on a cloud, but to be a part of a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and all kinds of incredible transformation that God's going to do in this world, and we are a part of it. That you're going to you know, pass away from this body, and your spirit is going to go be with him. But then at the return of Jesus Christ, you're going to receive a new body, Scripture says, and that you'll receive an immortal body that will live forever. And in that moment of your dying, will your heart be turned towards fear or will your heart be turned towards the hope that's set before you? It's said of Joseph Stalin, the communist leader of Soviet Union for 30-some years. He actually went to seminary and, and was connected uh, with a preaching family. But he rejected that, became an atheist. He helped forward the whole Soviet Union communistic regime's uh, uh, mindset that on his deathbed, his daughter says that he sort of rose up just a little bit and he clenched his fist one last time at God. Stalin was his given name. The name means steel. He died with a heart of steel. Stone set against God. I read that Joan Crawford, who was a movie star, on her deathbed, she had some people around her and her housekeeper started praying for her. And she rose up and she said, Damn it, 
Don't pray to God for me. Really? I don't want God's help. Don't pray for God's help. How are you going to die? In what kind of spiritual state will you die? I believe, as Scripture says here of Stephen, it wasn't a near-death experience because it was before death, if you will. This was a near-death vision. But the vision he had was Jesus at the right hand of God. And this was scripturally based. They would have known, the religious elite, what he was saying. Jesus at the right hand of God until he makes every enemy a footstool for his feet. Jesus was claiming the Old Testament scriptures about who the Lord, the Messiah, would be. But here's the interesting thing I find about Peter. And if you look at the passage, I won't throw it up there now. But he saw Jesus at the right hand of God in those moments. And Jesus wasn't seated at the right hand of God. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. And why do you think that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God? Because he was welcoming Stephen into the eternal realm. Stephen had the ability to push his way through the suffering. He had the ability to be bold in the midst of opposition because he saw the Lord always before him. And he saw the Lord standing to receive him. I want a life that sees the Lord always before me, always ready to receive and bring me in. And I pray that my boldness in this life as I serve him in this church age for as many years as he gives me will be a boldness that is birthed from the vision of reality and truth. That it will be a boldness that comes, not from the the myopic temporal things of this world, and I just sort of suck up the energy to be bold, I'm going to tough it out, I'm going to die this way, that kind of thing. No, I want it to be one where I'm just filled with His joy and His presence, and knowing that He's not only going to receive me into His eternal kingdom, He's going to... Speak me into his eternal kingdom with the well done, good and faithful servant. So I position this to you. Suffering as a result of faithfulness to Jesus is rewarded with his eternal acceptance and the joy then of knowing our service is for his eternal purpose and glory. So wherever you're at in your life, or even today on a Mother's Day, you could maybe replace suffering with parenting. Because sometimes it's challenging, is it not? Suffering as a result of faithfulness to Jesus is rewarded with his eternal acceptance, standing, receiving you in. And the joy of knowing our service has been for his eternal purpose and glory. Why? Did Jesus allow the script to unfold this way? Why didn't he save Stephen's life? We're going to look at that more next week when we focus on what happened to the church after the stoning of Peter. You know, last week, I close with these thoughts. Last week, I had the opportunity with my wife and our family to see my first child graduate from college. And some of you have been at some graduations here in the last few weeks, or maybe they're coming up. We were at Azusa Pacific University. Our son, Ryan James Bowman, graduated 
with two degrees. Very proud of him. A degree in cinematic arts and a degree in business administration. And, yeah. I could have said it last week when it was here, but I didn't want to embarrass him. The pictures you have before you is Ryan being happy that he's graduated and him walking across the stage. But the picture here on the left is Ryan sort of sneaking his way for a photo op around a gap in a wall at the end of a hallway in an outdoor rose garden area. And the reason he took the photo there, I asked him to take it, was it was four years ago that we dropped Ryan off. At that time, we were living in Indiana, so I had no idea we'd ever move to California. And we're dropping our first son off 2,000 miles away. And we have a prayer time in this rose garden. God bless him. And we hear the music playing from the stadium where all the freshmen are. And he's supposed to be getting there quickly. And he says to us, he says, well, love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Going to be good. Thanks for everything. You know, and you're like, wow, is this it? I mean, we're going to, you know, be flying back to Indiana. I mean, it's done. You know, we're done parenting. What is this? And he slips. He starts heading down the end of this dead-end hallway. And all of a sudden, he slips through this crack. And he's gone on this narrow escape to where the football stadium is. And it's like, boom, he just disappeared. (laughs) Where'd he go? My wife and I are standing there. We walk back to the car with tears in our eyes. But just like that, he reappeared. Four years later with a degree, two degrees. Where did time go? I know where the money went, but where did time go? Life moves quickly. Life moves fast. We as parents, you as parents, you as mothers this morning, what is it that you're instilling in your children in the hopes that you have for them? I'm so proud that he got degrees, but we are far greater proud that he lives a life, I believe, a life that seeks to have Jesus seen, Jesus invoked, Jesus trusted, and Jesus imitated. When he walked across that platform to receive his diploma, I was reminded when I walked across the platform of Taylor University when I received mine, and not only did I get my diploma, but they also gave me a towel. And the towel was symbolizing the towel of servanthood to serve people. At the baccalaureate the night before the commencement, the dean of the School of Theology spoke, and he said, I, I'm going to be remembered for the worst uh, graduation address ever. He says, you all want to go be world changers. The reality is you're going to go out there and you're going to mess up the world. That's what you're going to do. If you just seek to try to be successful. But if you seek to be full of the Spirit, full of what God's doing, He says you will pursue not upward mobility, but downward mobility. The downward mobility to serve, to serve the purposes of Christ, to serve the purposes of God on this earth, to serve within the church movement around the world and what God is doing. As you seek to serve that downward mobility, you will become great. That's exactly what Stephen did. Stephen was picked to be a servant amongst the others. He served with boldness, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power. And he was received, well done, my good and faithful servant. Brief life goes quick. Where's your life? What are you instilling in the lives of those who you've been entrusted to nurture? May we raise up soldiers of Jesus Christ who are not soldiers out with swords, 
but soldiers out with the truth of the word of God, seeing lives changed and transformed. And may we model that as we lead in our homes. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it's not to us, but it's by your spirit and for your glory of which we serve. We have no choice other than to submit to whatever your will is in our life if we're a follower of yours this morning. And Lord, that life may well be a life that has suffering in it, even some maybe to the point of death for you. I pray here this morning, God, that you would quicken us and empower us through your spirit as surely as you did, Stephen, that we would see your full glory and that we would be individuals, that we would be parents that are focused on things of eternality, your kingdom, your new heaven, your new earth, your truth, your word that will live forever, your love, your grace that needs to be poured out on the lost people. Jesus, we acknowledge that you defeated the enemy of death. Death is the final weapon of every tyrant or terrorist, and you defeated it. And we should be living full of hope and strength today as we gaze upon you. So, Jesus, I just pray in this moment as we get ready to sing a final concluding refrain of charge that you would take any individual in this room whose face is downtrodden, who is dejected, who is discouraged and defeated, and you would pick them up and you would enable them to see your glory and your wonder as they seek downward mobility to serve you. Lord, may you bless our children as we seek to raise them, not to be world changers in their own rights, but to be kingdom difference makers through the power of your Spirit. And may our children see modeled in us a life that we see modeled in Stephen. And Lord, may we leave from this day knowing that that life is possible because we can be possessed by your Spirit and it is your Spirit living through us that can lead that kind of life. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for your time this morning. We're going to close with this refrain. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your communication cards and your vote as to what you're doing. If you desire to be prayed for this morning, we always enjoy the opportunity to pray with you back by the cross, any need that you may have. But let's sing together this final refrain about him.